you've touched on something that's much more subtle, and this is a very wonky issue that we consider to be one of the biggest problems of transparency, which is the ability to weaponize amendments. If all legislators are voting secretly, it's impossible to weaponize an amendment. So what does weaponizing an amendment mean? You put in a bill about maybe giving subsidies to milk producers. They've had a tough year. Rainfall's not been there. So you put this bill forward about anyone who's involved in the dairy is going to get a subsidy this year. We're going to support them. I decide I'm going to mess this thing up. I'll add an amendment in there on prayer in schools. Excuse me, you just had an amendment on prayer in school. That's perfectly valid in the Senate. So I've added an amendment. It's been attached to your bill. And now we're going to vote on the bill. You know that you're going to lose office if you vote for or against prayer in school in some way. And so you've weaponized your amendment. In the old days, no one would do that because all the votes were secret. And people are just going to be like, why are you putting that up there? This increased. People are like, oh, that's not very common. It is insanely common. You're talking thousands of such amendments per year. And it is used to destroy literally everything. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. We have a wonderful guest today. My interest in this particular topic comes about by watching the news mm -hmm. and listening to the banter that goes on in Washington, D.C., and wondering why is Congress so ineffective? Why are they in uh, legislative muck? And why aren't they exerting their own rights and power that they have as mm -hmm. a branch of government? Why are they letting things go to the executive branch? Mm -hmm. As I was researching this and looking for information about this online, I came across the Congressional Research Institute and James D'Angelo, who's the founder of the Congressional Research Institute, He's based in Washington, D.C. in Cambridge, Massachusetts, travels widely around the world, has worked for NASA as a design engineer on the Polar Wind spacecraft, and he lectures on cryptography. His first academic paper on the pitfalls of sunshine or transparency was published in Foreign Affairs magazine in 2019. Hmm. But in 2014, he and two other gentlemen from Harvard and Boston College founded the Congressional Research Institute to support the work on improving representation. James, welcome to St. Louis In Tune. Hey, thanks for having me. To me, this is a really important topic that you have researched and discussed for a long period of time. We talk about the sunshine law here in Missouri, which is you can't do things under the table and you have to be transparent with your affairs in government activities, i.e. boards of education or governments or anything like that. And this rolls all the way up to our Congress, and you have some real particular opinions about that, don't you? Yeah, I've not looked at boards of education. I, I believe you've done some work in that area. But we focus almost exclusively on Congress, but it's so hard to avoid the other researchers in the space. We have David Pose at Columbia, who looks aggressively at FOIA and doesn't have a lot nice to say about it. You have other people looking at and speaking out about problems of transparency in the judicial area. You might have heard there's a recent federal justice who had her son shot. He was killed in her home because the people gained access to her information and her decisions and came to her house to shoot her and he stepped in the way and died. So, yeah, we do see these problems elsewhere, but we focus almost exclusively on Congress. Take us back to how this became an interest for you and why it became an interest for you. It's actually a strange story. I was, I was living with a, a roommate named Steve, and he was trying to be a scriptwriter. So he was always the smartest guy in our group, went to UPenn, and wanted to write on government, wanted to write scripts based on government. At that point, the West Wing was rolling, 
And so he was watching the West Wing fairly aggressively, trying to write similar scripts. And then he started to bring up videos that he had of Congress voting. And I just happened to be in the room. And I looked over, and I'm like, I didn't even know that. It shows you how little I knew about government. I didn't know they voted openly. And I got a chill. Nothing logical, nothing made sense to me. I got a chill. And I said, I would be terrified to vote openly if I was one of them. Who's going to punish them? Is their wife going to punish them for their vote? Is a special interest, a powerful group, the president? Who's going to be watching their votes and trying to make them pay for that? It was just a weird thing, and I mentioned that to him, and he basically he just tore me apart. Transparency. We can hold all our members accountable. It just makes perfect sense. And his, his argument was super logical. Then, it might have been 2006, I'm reading Fareed Zakaria's book, Future Freedom, page 178. He said something that sent chills through my spine again. He said, in the 1970s, they switched from being almost completely secret for all of history to completely open. So almost all votes before 1970, so all of John F. Kennedy's committee votes on anything important were secret. Oh, James Madison. In 1970, they switched. So under Richard Nixon, October 26th, they switched, and I got chills. Never heard about that. That seemed really strange. So I mentioned that again to my friend, and he was like, never heard about that either. So I started to look more aggressively at this. And the more uh, I looked, the more surprised I was, because the 1970s in particular are very interesting, if you think about Congress, because that's when almost everything changes. So inequality been dropping for 50 years. Start shooting up. Incarceration rates dropping for 50 years. They start shooting up. Partisanship falling for 50 years. They start shooting up. So anything to do in the 1970s has to be scrutinized. So that's how I got started. You know, that's going down a rabbit trail that really takes you to a whole other country or a whole, whole other continent or something like that. I, I get that, and that's the beauty of learning in our country and having access to the information. Right. Take people to some of the founders as how they devised what I would call this, quote-unquote, secrecy, and why they wanted right. secrecy. So, for, so you're talking about the framers of the Constitution? Yes. Yeah, so really fascinating. A lot of people think of the Constitution being written out of nowhere by these philosophers, so James Madison was just sitting in an armchair and came up with the Constitution. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, super poetic, was writing back and forth with him. John Adams, smoking on his pipe. These guys had all been super active in government. So they had been through the Articles of Confederation a few years before, and they were going to write the Constitution. The first rule that they put in their discussions of the Constitution was everything needs to be secret. Every single discussion, every single piece of paper. So for months in Philadelphia, in the summer, hot, they sealed the windows with wax, covered them with curtains, <laughs> had armed security inside and out, and wrote the Constitution in abject secrecy, as secret as any legislature has ever worked. Hmm. Then they put in Article One, Section 5 of the Constitution, the only reference to either transparency or secrecy they basically put a sort of couched right to legislative secrecy, where the word secrecy is capitalized, saying that legislators have a right to work in secret. Then when queried after this, Hamilton was pretty straightforward. He said, well, it's just clear. If we worked in the open, factions, which he means special interests or lobbyists, would destroy the process. Madison, on the other side, said, if we work in the open, no one's going to change their mind. Basically, no one's going to ask questions. You're not going to have deliberations. So the parties, and he did think about parties. A lot of people said the framers didn't think about parties. He basically foresaw the Civil War and the parties that would be created by the slavery issue. And he looked at any time you have a discussion in front of television cameras, you're going to have hard partisanship. And their predictions are about as spot on with the data as we see. So as soon as those committees were opened up in the 1970s, we see a shooting rise in lobbying, 
campaign finance and partisanship. You mentioned uh, in a video I watched that the name lobbyist, they previous to 1970, they were in the lobby. <laughs> and they were subservient to legislators as they walked in and were almost pleading. Now it's the other way around where they have the big stick and they're all over exactly. these. You have yeah, some I mean, pictures it, it, of, of those really, committee meetings. It's built into the name, right? So the last place a lobbyist wants to be, by the way, is in the lobby. And when they get pushed out into the lobby, they basically go home. Most people will say, okay, so you switched everything in 1970, and now everything's risen. But how do you know it's this transparency thing? We've had the great fortune that Congress has occasionally reversed their views on transparency. And so 1986 and 1990, we had two major pieces of legislation. We had the previous tax reform, and we had the most powerful environmental legislation in history. Both of those decided, as Princeton scholar Douglas Arnold said, in abject secrecy, and the lobbyists were furious. The New York Times interviews one lobbyist as he's heading home. Why are you going home? What am I going to do, sit outside and wait for them to build my gallows? You know, insurance wow. lobbyists going home, corporate lobbyists going home. The, what's interesting is you find a lot of the more passionate lobbyists and not the pay-to-play guys were sticking around. So the people are like, I just really want to change this concept because I care about it. There's a river in my backyard that is dirty. I want to clean. They stayed because you can still talk to people and convince them with passion, but you can't convince someone by threatening them anymore. So yeah, lobbyists hate the lobby. We could basically say, just put the lobbyists back in the lobby and we're going to see legislation change. You also went into that secrecy equals corruption, and there's a lie there. That's a lie. That, that's, that <laughs> secrecy is going to bring about corruption. Would you Discuss that because how you laid that out was that it's really the complete opposite. Uh, so that's fairly old in my writings, not something that I've changed my mind on, but I'll try and remember what notes I was hitting. I'm Sicilian, and I've got family who's been arrested in the mafia. A very close friend was a big wig in the Sicilian mafia. I was with him the week before he got arrested. I understand corruption. Right? I understand how people move. And... If you're going to bribe someone or if you're going to intimidate someone, you need confirmation of that. So I'm not going to give you money and have you go do a hit on someone if I can't confirm, A, that they're dead, and B, that they're killed. <laughs> right? So I need the transparency of the action to respond to the contract that you and I formed if you're the hitman. That's true of all forms of corruption. So if you're going to bribe some officer at a border crossing, you're going to need to confirm that <laughs> you're going to be able to get through or the person's going to get through before payment. So all forms of corruption require transparency. We have the history of the 1890s, which is the only other time in history when inequality, partisanship, and campaign finance was soaring as high as it is now. And so we had what was called the Gilded Age. Magically, for some unknown reason, if you look at Wikipedia, they won't even tell you why the Gilded Age ended. And suddenly we go into the progressive era. It was as if a sun rose and the air changed and everyone started caring. Well, in 1890, the date when that changed, we introduced the first secret ballots. Those secret ballots prevented bribery because how much are you going to pay for someone to vote if you can't see how they vote? And the answer to that historically it's pretty clear zero or near zero certainly how much are you going to attack and attempt to murder someone for their vote if you didn't see how they voted the answer again is near zero but there used to be a lot of election violence one paper in cincinnati said only eight people were killed on election day some guy got shot through his nose edgar Allan poe mysteriously died on an election night so the election violence was rife it was discussed in congress and Boom, secret ballot. Next year, everyone's like, why is everything so quiet? Why is everything so peaceful? And legislation changes as they start to get these incumbents out. And we get this massive increase in equality and massive drop in almost everything else that, that we consider uh, to be problematic. So 
yeah, there are other factors, but the secret ballot has to be considered as a principal one. What is funny is if you look at political cartoons from that era, they had the symbol, everyone knows the symbol for justice, so it's the scale, and a symbol for an angel. But they also had a symbol for democracy, and it was a glass globe voting ball. This would be the head of the character of democracy, because transparency was so important. This glass globe ball was where you would go to vote. So you'd go to the saloon, there'd be a number of people yelling, money changing hands, guns everywhere, and you'd go drop your colored ballot. Basically, if you were voting for Biden, for example, it would be a blue ballot into the glass bowl as it would fall. And all the jeering and punches that might follow that. The one of the main arguments that people made for not having women vote was because it was too dangerous. It, it's hard to think about it in those terms today. Now, playing off of that and transferring that to the present, you had talked about William I in, in England and how he would go to Parliament and watch the vote happen and how people changed their vote. Would you align that with what we see now today and the intimidation, the fear oh, yeah. that representatives and senators go through? And what's the kickback for them, kickback in a negative way for them? So the first secret committees that we know of happened in the 1600s in England. So the first time we really have a legislature in any real sense in England is after Runnymede, 1215, when the aristocracy gets in a fight with the king and the aristocracy wins. So it's the first time we actually have, have the aristocracy submitting a legislature, if you will. So England becomes sort of the foundation for this notion of separation of powers. And so we have, over the years, it evolves into what we now know as House of Commons and House of Lords. The House of Commons had been tasked with the same thing as they are now, control the funds that the king could access. So in the 1600s, they would control the access the king might have to money. The king started to get very clever with how he would deal with Parliament. So he would show up in Parliament with guys with chains and weapons and he would watch the votes. Suddenly, all the votes seemed to be going in his favor, and he chased some legislators into the countryside and threatened arresting numerous other ones, and I believe even shackled a few. And so the House of Commons fought back using a parliamentary trick. The trick was that all committees at that time were considered secret. And so they formed this thing, and we still have it in the U.S., called the Committee of the Whole, which is exactly what it says. The entire parliament can now walk into a committee, and its doors will be closed. And we get this first true separation between the king and the parliament. Parliament immediately starts rejecting ridiculous requests for money. And, of course, things lead up later, and we get Oliver Cromwell, and he leads Parliament against the king to kill the king, then Cromwell gets corrupt, and then he gets killed, and we get all this madness. I think it's a very important thing to note that's the first secret committee. Now, if we look at sub-Saharan Africa, for example, now, or other places, we see the same exact thing happening today. So the president of Uganda, Museveni, sits inside of Parliament on all major votes. And in no uncertain terms, he does the exact same thing. So if a member of parliament votes against him, they could be shot. He could run a campaign against them. They can be arrested. Museveni is famous for arresting legislators, and some of them die, even in, in jail there. So you don't have a true separation of powers if you're allowing the most powerful person in the country to bring his henchmen into parliament. So when they were trying to change the Constitution there in Uganda, and this is just a few years ago, all the opposition was crying for one thing, secret ballots in the legislature. We can run that fast forward to the current impeachment process with Trump, where even Chuck Schumer said on video just a couple weeks ago, if the impeachment vote was secret, Trump loses. This is not just a partisan comment because you have Jeff Flake and other Republican pundits saying not just the same thing, but saying that if the vote on impeachment was secret, 30 to 40 Republican senators would have flipped their vote. And we got a good taste of that, and I'm probably getting into the weeds a little bit, but this data is kind of fun because it's so recent. 
is there was the vote on Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney had famously voted against Trump in the House for impeachment. And so Republicans all up in arms had a vote to censure her in the House. And that vote was conducted in secret. She won two to one in a vote with just Republicans. So she was exonerated, basically a denial of Trump's power as soon as the members of Congress were allowed to vote secretly. So, yeah, we see this everywhere, every time. One of my favorite arguments to anyone who's fighting against me, you have the pro-transparency group, Sunlight Foundation, Transparency International, where the chairman actually admitted to me that she thinks I might be on to something. I say to them the same thing. Show me an example where it worked, where transparency worked. I haven't seen it yet. Mm. We make that standing offer on Twitter all the time and never get a response. So it's fairly interesting. As we're unpacking this, I hope people are beginning to see how this fear and intimidation in both parties works and how ads and people with a lot of money out there say, because you're voting this way, I'm going to give money to the candidate against you. It really leverages people to begin to compromise votes and what they're saying, even how things are used against them. They may not have even voted against the particular thing. may have been part of a whole bigger bill in Congress that they voted against. James, as I go back and look at some of the information that you have online, it's very, very good. And folks, congressionalresearch.org, congressionalresearch.org. I see these charts that you have, and I'm just going to lay these out for people because they're not seeing what I'm seeing. The consequences of the 1970 Legislative Reorganization Act. If you go on the website, you will see these following things have happened from 1970. Income equality has just gone out the roof. An incarceration rate the same way. Registered lobbyists, etc. Senate filibusters etc. Gone out the roof. Campaign finance, that's gone way off the charts. Open and closed rules in the House, same thing. These are all going up. The federal debt, mean party difference, House polarization, bill complexity, trust in government. Oh, that one didn't go up. That's gone down. (laughs) Percent of staff on communications, gone way up. Pages in the Federal Register, health care costs, and you keep going, union membership down, and there's three more. House roll call votes have gone up. Taxation on the top, 0.01% has gone down, and mass shootings and more guns has gone up. Now, I'm not going to have you comment on each one of those because each one of those is a show in itself, James. (laughs) But I found it was just fascinating to see, and you put this together, and folks, just so you know, This isn't something that is, he's pulling out of his ear here. There are over, what is it, 350 papers that have been written on this, supporting this? Yeah. The interesting thing about it is, academically, it's nearly a consensus. We don't have a single peer-reviewed academic paper suggesting that transparency is good. Not one. So it's pretty jaw-dropping to think about that. The question is, why hasn't it changed then? I, I think that's a great question, and I, I was hoping to comment on that quickly because it's very interesting. You've got the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, saying if it's a secret ballot, Trump gets impeached, but the Senate Majority Leader can control that. So Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution allows him to control how that vote is done, and yet he held it transparently. Now, the problem here is fairly clear that Schumer, if he ran that vote as a secret vote, he would come under enormous fire, and not just from the right. He would get attacked by the left. The belief and love for transparency is so entrenched that legislators, both on the right and left, are terrified to even talk about it. And so in history, we have very few sitting legislators talking about the problems of transparency. They do occasionally, and one very interesting one is that after we published our paper, Francis Leah Princeton, respected scholar, basically presented our work in front of Congress to a committee. And the only comments from the legislators were in support of our work. They're like, yeah, come on, if we could close this down, we'd be able to get along with each other. All civil rights legislation was passed in secret committees. 
if they were open, they would have never passed all these things. So it's actually a problem of the press and the public and the beliefs that they have. And this tails in very easily to the rise in incarceration, which is also a major stain on America. The trouble here is the same. It's that the public always, every single poll, they believe that crime in their neighborhood is 400 times worse or 40 times worse than it is. And you cannot, as a legislator, be soft on crime. You can't say, oh, we got to get some guys out of jail. Right? We've got too many people in there for marijuana or whatever. You can't start talking about that. If you do, you will lose your next election. And so every legislator, since they opened this up, has now become, let's get tougher on crime. And that's what we've gotten. So it's important to note that there's these special interests like farm, big pharma, big oil are very important in this discussion. But the people can also be problematic on their blind spots. So when the people don't understand incarceration or nuclear power or transparency, we run into massive problems as well. So how do we best educate the people to... <laughs> You're doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's one reason I wanted to have wait, you on. Wait, how do, how do we change it? <laughs> Get rid of the transparency. Well, it's the, the buzzword the, right the now. The interesting thing is I've never spoken to a legislator who doesn't get it. I had a Republican member of the House. I, I met with his staff. Ten minutes later, I get a call on the phone. Hey, the representative wants to meet you. I won't use his name because it will be clear in a second. I go back to his office, I walk in, and he bear hugs me and whispers in my ear. He goes, we get it. We all get it. If I talk about this right now, I'm done. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Because yeah. they're more concerned with so, getting back reelected than they are of holding firm to what they really believe. So I actually spend a good time, part of my time defending legislators from accusations of cowardice. So if, say you're that Republican representative, and this happens on both sides of the fence, you've made a commitment to your public, your constituents, to do X, Y, and Z. If you get taken out for B, you've now broken the promise made with your constituents. So it's very dangerous for a legislator to put him in a position, himself, him or her, in, in a position to get taken out for an issue that's not on their agenda. Because if they lose, if that representative loses, usually on X, Y, and Z, the person that replaces them is the opposite. So people are like, oh, just stand up and, and vote your conscience. Well, everybody knows what will happen. You'll be gone, and you'll probably voting your conscience on an issue that lost 208, you know, 418 to 5. And so you voted as one of the five. And so it doesn't get you anywhere. So it's a, it's a tragedy of the commons. There's a, another name for it. I forget what it is. But these are known principles where standing out and being the only individual is very dangerous. And so to lose office and basically deny your constituents and you of your dreams to carry forward X, Y, and Z over B creates a problem. Most people don't see that subtlety, which is why we run into problems with every single special interest, because they're running their interests on A, B, C, B, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, where all these interest groups can take you out because they can control 1% to 2% of the votes. So, you know, this bravery notion where a legislator should just vote everything according to their ideal situation. Yeah, that happened when they were voting secretly, but as soon as it's transparent, it becomes a calculus, and that calculus is often skewed by the fact that you have multiple things you're working on. Can I say, when I was mayor, uh, one of my mayor stories, <laughs> I found, it's, awesome. it's a, I, it, what I found was that the right decision to make in, in that kind of an arena is never the popular decision. So it takes courage to, to stand up and yeah. say, this is the right thing to do. I know everybody doesn't see it the way that I do or this the way that it is because they have other agendas, but the right decision is never, I, I'm telling you, is never the popular decision. And it does. It, it, it'll, it'll cost you your election the next time around. Yeah, there's right. so much truth right. into what and you're a saying. Mayor, and a mayor's an executive, so they don't really have a choice of secrecy. Because oh. you're a single person, you can't hide your votes. Right. So the, the president, when he vetoes something or signs something, he's basically voting publicly. 
But there's no way to hide that. He's an individual. But a legislature provides that dynamic that allows for the ability to snub the mob, right, when the mob's wrong about something. So if the mob's wrong about crime, because both on the right and the left, every legislator wants to pull money out of the incarceration system. They all want that out. Some want to just tuck back into people's pockets. Others want to use it for other programs. They know that if they touch that, (laughs) they're done. And it's not because the prison lobby is too powerful. They're strong. They do about $25 million a year. But they're not going to knock you out. It's the public response, the Willie Horton stories, the nightmare stories of someone who who moved against um, those issues. So it is different. So that's why we tend to focus on Congress, where we see the executive being slightly different problem. But you're right. The public is often not considering the dynamic. And, and we see that via referendum. So California goes hog wild in referendums, and 10 years later, they're bankrupt. Why? It just makes perfect sense. Everybody's going to vote for lower taxes, and everyone's going to vote for more services. Okay, how long is that going to last? So the public has a hard time putting all the the pieces together. So referendum are traditionally very dangerous things to do. There was a congressman from Mississippi who voted against his party. He's a Democrat. And on this recent $1.9 trillion Uh, And he said the reason was, hey, my constituents don't want this. So the the question I'm going to give to you, James, is what kind of weaponization can be used against him from within his own party as it relates to, like, Speaker Pelosi or being on committees? Those are always used as leverage points. You vote for me and you get all these other kinds of things. How much does that play into this? Well, you've touched on something that's much more subtle, and this is a very wonky issue that we consider to be one of the biggest problems of transparency, which is the ability to weaponize amendments. If all legislators are voting secretly, it's impossible to weaponize an amendment. So what does weaponizing an amendment mean? You put in a bill about maybe giving subsidies to milk producers. They've had a tough year. Rainfall's not been there. So you put this bill forward about anyone who's involved in the dairy is going to get a subsidy this year. We're going to support that. I decide I'm going to mess this thing up. I'll add an amendment in there on prayer in schools. Excuse me, you just had an amendment on prayer in school. That's perfectly valid in the Senate. So I've added an amendment. It's been attached to your bill. And now we're going to vote on the bill. You know that you're going to lose office if you vote for or against prayer in school in some way. And so you've weaponized your amendment. In the old days, no one would do that because all the votes were secret. And people are just going to be like, why are you putting that up there? This increased. People are like, oh, that's not very common. It is insanely common. You're talking thousands of such amendments per year. And it is used to destroy literally everything. So that's why people are like, I hate Mitch McConnell. He won't allow for a vote on this. He won't. If he allows for a vote on almost anything, it's going to be weaponized. Hmm. Someone's going to throw in something. It's always going to be a topic that drives everybody in the public mad. So abortion, guns, race, whatever. You can't put up a regular bill anymore because it will be weaponized. So they do all these tricks to get around it. You mentioned the rise in closed rules. Closed rules are a direct result of weaponization. It's almost impossible to control. I don't know this Mississippi legislator well enough, but there's always something that can be put forward that will drive your consistency crazy, something that will split them in half. Maybe they're putting a school in a district that he's dealing with, and half the population don't want the school because it's too expensive, the other half want it. If I want to destroy you and make you look bad in the next election, I put out an amendment on something to do with that school. Wait, this is federal legislation. I don't care. I can put any amendment I want. I'm in the Senate. Now he has to vote on it. Of course, all the other senators have to vote on it, and they waste their time. He's going to vote on it as soon as he votes on it. That's fuel for the negative ad campaigns. As soon as he votes on it, what do you do next week? You write a similar one. Then you write another. And then the local newspaper is going to go crazy and be like, this guy, all he wants to do is vote against or for the school or gambling or whatever it is in his district that drives people crazy. When they were voting secretly 
This was impossible. So weaponization is very wonky, but the numbers have increased so much, and that's why we have all this partisanship. People are driven to the extremes because the people most under attack are going to be the moderate. So moderate Republicans generally are the most endangered species in Congress because if you put something up on climate, they're in trouble. Guns are in trouble. Anything. The big money comes after them. Very poorly understood topic, but again, the amount of citations that we've collected on that are, are in the hundreds. And it is fortunately starting to see light in places like the New York Times and other places. So people are now writing me about this topic, but it's, it's something that we've been looking at. It's just an enormous problem. Matter of fact, I mentioned 350. It's actually 450 plus that you have listed. What you've said just really makes sense to me because I watch things go on. I watch the impeachment trial, and I see all the senators sitting there. And whenever <laughs> you see something on C-SPAN and some senators giving a speech, a very impassioned speech, nobody's there. I, I just <laughs> wish they would all right. be there like they're supposed to be. But it makes sense that because of all this other stuff going on, I'm looking at your charts right now, why now we have more federal debt because nobody wants to say no because it's going to be used against them, why there's this polarization, why there's these massively com complex bills because, right. frankly, the legislators don't write them, the lobbyists do, and then why right. filibusters are used. It just all makes sense to me. I wish they could just get back into this closed session, this secret session, and say, we're going to change the Senate and the House rules, which they can per the Constitution, and say we're going to go right. back to this. And they can do it tomorrow. They can change That's it correct. tomorrow. There's no constitutional amendment needed. But again, the terror for them is the press and the public. They all get it. They really do. And I say one of the biggest misunderstandings is that every Republican congressperson understands climate change perfectly hmm. would love to move on it. I speak to them. I'm from the South. You're in St. Louis. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I speak to these guys constantly, and I enjoy Republicans. They know I'm not a Republican, but we get along great. They whisper to me all the time, you know how quick I'd move on that? You think I'm going to buy a house near the beach? You know what I would do if there was a secret? They get it, right? And this is true on both sides of the fence. They actually know they all get these things. So... They know that incarceration has gone through the roof. They know that they've got to put controls on certain things. They can't because it's an individual action that will get punished individually, And which is why we see the trends and the graphs that we see. Some of them, my favorite examples are when you have a secret vote and then a public vote or a public vote and then a secret vote. One great one was during the 1986 tax reform. And Rostenkowski, he's trying to get this tax reform passed. And keep in mind, this is under. Reagan, they passed one of the most fair tax reforms in history, and that's agreed on by people on the right and the left. Rostenkowski sees that a committee has voted basically to support all the banking interests. This is ridiculous. You guys have lost your minds. And he goes, oh, you voted in public. Revote. Let's have it in secret. Mm -hmm. Minutes later, same committee votes and flips the decision. Wow. 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 So people are all like, our legislators are terrible. Let's replace them. Let's end gerrymandering. All these things that people are working on are basically because they think legislators accept bribes. They don't. They think they're all corrupt. They're not. They're terrified. As soon as the committees close, we see this. Most people don't notice these things are really fun. Like Elizabeth Warren, how hated is she by the right? She's hated. She proposed in front of a Republican-led committee just months ago, she proposed to remove statues of Civil War heroes from federal buildings. How's that vote going to go? Republican-led committee. She's going to get annihilated, right? Yeah. They voted in secret and supported it. I'm just going to quote from your article here. It's distorted the dynamics, and <laughs> it's created chaos in our democracy. How do we get out of this other than they stand up and say as a group, we're not going to take this anymore. We're not going to do it. Right. Unfortunately, the press, I would say, is probably one of the bigger problems here because in many cases they're underfunded. They're working quickly, so they're not able to really consider ideas, and they've got to make a sensationalistic argument. I think you even mentioned you know, we've got to make people look more partisan, and we've got to make something that looks like a hot-button topic. Mm -hmm. And so for a thoughtful 
article on this from the press is rare. It's gotten more common because our work has now trickled out here and there, but it's still rare. If the press is going to attack the legislator, they're going to be in trouble with the public who's basically still believing that transparency is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But keep in mind that this stuff, there's manipulation going on here. This is very strong and overt manipulation because the transparency groups who, I don't call them my enemies, I think a lot of them are great people trying to make government better, but they're all funded by all the people we're supposed to be taking down with the transparency. Mm-hmm. So they're mm-hmm. funded by the Cokes or Google or Amazon. Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post when he's under fire for antitrust stuff in 2017. He buys the Washington Post and adds a tagline to the Washington Post. He never had one before. So on the top page of every Washington Post, you see the same thing. Democracy dies in darkness. No one on earth terrifies legislators more in public than Jeff Bezos and and Amazon. They lobby and drive legislators crazy. Do they offer money? No. Basically what they do is they say, oh, we were considering putting our headquarters in your district. You're just not working out for us. Or... We were considering putting the warehouse, four of them, in your district, and not happening. There was a recent PBS report, and they talked about some of this openly. The guy couldn't figure out why he couldn't get anyone to testify against Amazon. And he said, I would go meet with these people. So this is the big lawyer, Barry something. I would go meet with these people, vendors and other people, and they would all tell me, Amazon's just the worst. They're basically wrecking our entire model. And he said, okay, well, come testify about it. They're like, we no. can't do that. <laughs> he says that in the PBS documentary. No one would testify. That's crazy. That's how the mob worked. If you watch any Godfather movie, that's exactly the center of all the movies, right? Mm-hmm. The people won't testify because right. they're terrified. And that's what we've done to Congress. They won't Chuck Schumer won't move to secret ballots because he knows, because Chuck Schumer is right now very afraid of AOC. AOC could announce any day she'll be running for his seat in Senate next next time. He's walking on thin ice because between him and AOC, he's terrified right now. This is all trickled down to the state level and Mm -hmm. to the local level, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Sunshine Laws, some of them started before 1970. There's just a couple, Wisconsin, etc., but almost all of them came on the heels. So you have the Cokes who fund ALEC. ALEC is basically tasked with de-unionizing everybody, and ALEC works exclusively on state legislatures. So they don't do anything in D.C. And they have enormous success at destroying unions. And on the first page, I believe, of their current website, they argue, of course, Every state legislature needs to be as transparent as possible. So the very people and organizations we are trying to fight are funding and supporting. So they fund the Freedom of Information group. They fund other groups. They understand this very well. And so does you know Don Corleone when they're going into court. They understand very well that they want to see who's on the jury and where their houses are. This is old school. This is what Cicero said 2,000 plus years ago. And Cicero was an aristocrat. And he, mm. he said very angrily, he said, this is weird. Every law that's designed in secret hurts the aristocracy. We should get rid of this secrecy stuff. So, yeah, this is throughout history. Alec, as he was stating, is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Right. F- I wouldn't have even been able <laughs> to name that. The, the full name there, but FYI, uh, looked yeah, that up. heavily funded by the folks and other groups, and as you see, the change in unionization has, has been dramatic. One of the big successes early on, as soon as the votes were made public, was they banned wildcat strikes. Cokes claim to be libertarian. What's more libertarian than a wildcat strike where you yeah. basically, right. the firemen go on strike and the policemen are like, we'll go on strike to support them. That, to me, sounds libertarian. They use regulations aggressively to make unions have a harder time. James, question, how do you get from NASA, a design engineer on the Polar Wind spacecraft, to founding the Congressional Research Institute? 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> um, not sure how to answer that, but I, I, I all say is my love for electronics was never that big. I actually fell in love with the, the work of a professor, and I started following him, Tony Mabretic. He actually died a year and a half ago, sorely missed. But he had been working on the Voyager stuff. He was at Boston University and Harvard. Then there was another guy, Alan Lazarus, whose work I started following when I was in, in school at BU. And he was at MIT. I just found them very fascinating. They would talk about everything. But they were analog circuit designers in a time when no one was doing analog circuit design. And right. I just fell into that world of their world designing analog circuitry. You mentioned a soundboard. Most soundboards up until very recently have been analog, but now they're almost all digital. So I was one of the very few. I, I would say I, I didn't have a lot of competition when they got this massive funding to start work on the Polar Wind project. So in some ways, I was one of the only analog circuit designers that came at a budget because they got paid better than I did. So I ended up on that project and enjoyed it immensely, mostly because I just loved the people and the thought and the ideas around it. And I remember being in the lab a number of times when we'd get images back very slowly back in those days from the Voyager craft. So I'd be some of the there during some of the first visualizations of some of those. So obviously I'm very excited about what's been going on in Mars and the SpaceX struggles that they're they're dealing with now. But then I, the NASA project ended, and I was like, I just don't really want to be in this space. I actually interviewed with Apple, and, and literally in the first hour, I realized I didn't want the job I was being offered at Apple. I told them so. You can keep going around and meeting people, and I basically did, and I swam in the pool. They had put me up and all of this. But then I got to my, make my way after that. So I ended up doing you know, work on cryptography, a lot of tech stuff that I've always had, but I've, I've always been tied into governance. So I did a lot of work with cryptocurrency folks. I've spoken at MIT, Harvard, all that stuff about crypto. And it, I was doing a lot with that, discussing the cryptography of that when I basically was bumping into those realizations on government. So when I started to realize via Fareed Zakaria's book and the data I was looking at that the 70s transition was really important. To me, that was the answer to everything because I was very concerned about race issues, injustice, or climate, I dropped everything and dove into this very nervously, and I launched a video on my Bitcoin cryptocurrency channel, ready to delete it immediately if it got reviews basically saying I was wrong. It became immediately the most watched video on my channel with tons of great responses. And that led to me meeting uh, Harvard professor David King, who's been my main cohort on this and Brent Rinaldi in the first five minutes David and I are like we've got a partner on this this is great he dropped his writing where he was writing about partisanship through another avenue I think he's still got some very interesting points about problems with how primaries have developed and I think he's he, it's valid but I think he believes that this is much stronger in terms of partisanship and of course deals with all these other topics that that he cares about as well and he is easily the best person ever to speak to on this, but he's harder to get a hold of. So I, I do more of the public outreach than he does. So I've spoken at more conferences and stuff like that. And I'm building my chops mostly because he'll email me after he sees something, go, you misstated that or the data matter. <laughs> the committee wasn't like that. And this is how committees work. Cause he's just been doing this since 1992. He was the youngest. And I might be the first political science Hiree at Harvard, true political scientist, and was one of, I, I believe, the first Harvard professor on Facebook. So he's fascinating in his own. So the path has been weird, but it, it, it was love at first sight for me when I started to see these correlations, which we now believe are better than correlations. Now, you have also penned an article, How Lobbying Killed George Floyd. I just tickled some people out there listening in listener land. You also have a very fascinating thesis on what I would call the inequality of representation that we have in the Senate and how representation can be right. a little bit fairer and how we've missed right. the boat on that. I thought that was very fascinating. That's still part of the great compromise, unfortunately, that we basically allow each state to senators. I believe that would have major change if we voted for our senators by something that Germany does and other countries do, a uh, mode of proportional representation. So instead of having only 12 African-American 
senators throughout history, which is not correlate to their percentage. They're about 13% of African Americans in the United States. So we should have 13 each term <laughs> if we voted by proportional representation. But we've had 12 throughout history. So instead of each state voting individually, we would end up with a much broader group in the Senate. So I think that would be an enormous change. And I think it would be wonderful. The trouble with that is it's anti constitutional to change that and would run into enormous problems trying to get that through to be looking at a supermajority of the governors and everyone else to change that. Whereas the thing that we're working on with transparency, which I think will in the end be more effective, mm -hmm. is something that can be changed tomorrow. I think they're both near impossible tasks. So I'm ready to hand my notes to my grandkids and <laughs> have them continue the fight. But I believe we stand a much better chance at making the changes here with the transparency stuff. People get it. That's the beauty is I never speak and people don't get it. The trouble is in a tweet, people don't get it. So I basically end up having to speak to people for a little bit or they have to watch a video or something like that, which fortunately is happening. I'm in discussions with people about doing a documentary film now and other people have been reaching out. I just did an interview yesterday. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I know that when I first talked to David King about it, the, the professor at Harvard, he's like, Ooh, <laughs> it's going to take a while. <laughs> I was disheartened because I was thinking, wow, everyone will get this in a week. And now I've got this guy from Harvard supporting it. And, but he's been absolutely spot on about that. It makes perfect sense. And I can see how lobbyists and other individuals would not want this to go any farther because they would be out of work and would be out of influence. We wish. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> we wish. Here, here's, a, here's a quote from one of his last lines. The Sunshine Laws have allowed for special interest capture of government while leading to angry hyperpartisanship and pernicious gridlock. And that's exactly what we see. That's it. I'm indebted to you, James, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. This is a really important area. Folks, I encourage you to look up his papers, look up his videos that he has on YouTube, as it relates to this, go to congressionalresearch.org. You'll find more information about this. James, thanks again. This has been great, and would love to check in with you more as you proceed down the road, mm -hmm. if that's okay with you, and see, see where things are ending up. I would absolutely love it. I've really enjoyed your show. I actually checked out a few of them before we did this interview. There was one notable one where... They were talking about the benefits to certain kids of not being in the classroom, the kids who, in a private space, are able to learn and study better. So I, I chuckled because it does tie in a bit with this. But thank you so much. Your questions were great, and it's so nice to have someone research it so completely before doing something like this. Thanks. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, James. We've been talking to James D'Angelo, founder of the Congressional Research Institute. James, thanks very much. Have a great weekend, sir. Thanks. Bye, guys. We're glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stewart.